Welcome to Dragon Talk. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by Bart Carroll. Hello again. How's it going, Bart? Uh, it's good. It's good. Yeah, you heard our great weekend story from Shelly already. So. I know, right. Shelly popped in to be like, I can't do this podcast, but I will tell you about Throw Up. It looked like the Mr. Wolf scene from Pulp Fiction. Oh, no, really? <laughs> Except it was with a kid in the backseat of our... And we had we were having the best conversation. He was asking me right beforehand if Superman could run so fast that he just picked off the... Or no, the Flash, if he could run so fast if he just ever picked off the ground and started flying. Because we're having a debate about which superheroes are fast and which ones could fly. Yeah, and, and then he was like, and by the way... I thought it was I thought it was going very well, and then there was this horrible moment of silence that you realize, oh no, oh, something, no. something bad is about to happen. That's something bad really, really, happens. really did happen. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Well, <laughs> so that was my weekend. At least the car is better, and that it didn't like get on like anything like toys or like anything that was like oh, know, it got okay. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And then you take him home, and uh, he's just sitting there in the back seat, and he's kind of looking at me like it's my fault somehow. Like, oh, can you get me out of here already? It's your fault. Can you hurry up? Yeah. about getting me out of this. You're the reason I'm attacked by this yellow ochre. <laughs> or this ochre jelly is all over me right now. Right. So yeah, so yeah, it's going well. Ugh, Mondays, Mondays are uh, all fun right. day to come back. Well, like all of the official D and D podcasts, we always start with uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with catching up on kid stories. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I was having my I took my girls to Pike Place Market uh, this weekend, and uh, one of them, uh, my youngest, got a mermaid, uh, and then my oldest was like, "I don't want a mermaid." I'm like, "Oh, okay. What do you want?" She's like, "I want that dragon." I'm like. Cool. How much is it? And it was like not not. I was thinking it was gonna be super expensive, and it wasn't. I was like sold. So they've been playing with like mermaids and dragons, and I'm like, I'm, I just was so happy that she picked a, a fantasy monster. They sell more than fish at the Pike Place Market. They apparently. do, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or uh, and beef the, jerky. Or the fish counters expanded to mermaids, which would be kind of horrifying. But you know, I don't know. I think they should cool. do that actually. Just have like. <laughs> A fake mermaid as like one of the displays. One of the fish guy though has like you know his his upper body is sticking out through the ice, (laughs) and he's got to throw it to you. (laughs) Here's this dead body of a mermaid. Gross. Uh, So yeah, a lot of things are going on in the Dungeons and Dragons world. Uh, Of course, Tales from the Yawning Portal is out now, uh, not just in game stores but wide everywhere. You can order it across. Uh, all kinds of interweb areas uh, make it happen. It's really fun. I've been playing through a bunch of the adventures. They're little like bite-sized ways to get into older adventures, uh, like Against the Giants or uh, uh, Tomb of Horrors, which I actually played uh, very recently and was lots of fun um, as a DM. <laughs> Not so much as a player. Um, no, it is fun as a player, but let's be honest. The old, like the, the Gary Gygax, like, language in the Tomb of Horrors write-ups are very, like, amusing and uh, awesome. So they're great. Yeah, it's, it, it can be a bit confrontational sometimes. But yeah. I think it's all in good fun. So yeah. But Not a lot of fighting of monsters. It's all about, like, figuring out how to outsmart yourself a bit. No. Y- you almost need a dial as a DM if you want monsters. And we wrote about this in The Last Dragon Plus, actually. Yeah. Um, if you want a monster dungeon, uh, that's probably not the one to go for out of the box, but there's ways to do it. Yeah. If you have, like, a competing party coming in after your party, that's always a way to Oh, to, that's a to, good to idea, too. Uh, I like that idea. NPCs in there, so. Cool. But, yeah, there's there's only a couple. Check out Tales of the Lightning Yawning Portal. There's also older, uh, uh, not older, newer adventures in there as well. Things like Forge of Fury, uh, as well as uh, Sunless Citadel from 3.5. A mm-hmm. lot of people don't know this, but uh, that was one of the most best-selling adventures ever mm-hmm. in the history of not just Wizards of the Coast, but TSR as well. 
It, it did double duty. It was a great adventure and it was a great introductory experience for the new edition at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you were, third edition was just coming out. So, hey, let's all try Sunless Citadel. And it happened to be a, a really solid, great adventure. So that worked out pretty well for, for that. Cool, you can't, yeah. we've been talking about it a lot for the last couple episodes. We can't talk about it enough because it does, I go into just, it's amazing. You, you, I just love that people are going to be able to take in these older things uh, and uh, uh, digest them and then poop them out. Wait, yep. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're good event. They're, they're classic adventures for a reason. And by, and by the excrement, I mean like you, you're being inspired and to create new, new adventures uh, and uh, write new stories, which uh, is a good dovetail into who our guest is uh, uh, today. Uh, uh, James, I'm going to say your name wrong, actually. Hake? Wow, you got it right. Perfectly. <laughs> nice! <laughs> My God. I, 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 I wouldn't say I was practiced as much as I did for Joe Manganello, but I didn't. I actually just was like, yeah, it sounds like that's what it is. Uh, you've, you've reached the top percentile then. <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't get it right the first time. I have leveled up. Not without me telling them it rhymes with cake. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that mm-hmm. is that, right. mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Another good band, Cake. Hey. I really do like them as well. Uh, and also from L.A., right? Are they from L.A.? And you're living in L.A. right now. Yep, that's right. Crazy. Well, we'll get to uh, more information uh, uh, with the interview with James uh, after that. Uh, but we also have a... S- oh, do you want to talk about Dragon Plus is coming out in April? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll make my quick little pitch for Dragon Plus. The next issue is coming out at the end of April. We are looking deeper into Tales from the Awning Portal. Uh, we decided to get a little ambitious, and instead of doing one feature uh, covering the book, because it has the seven adventures from the different ed- uh, editions, we wanted to look at each of the adventures. We reached out to Bruce Cordell and Rich Baker and Scott Fitzgerald Gray and uh, pulled out some of the concept art that went into it. Uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, end of April, we'll have a nice, meaty uh, Dragon Plus looking at Tales from the Yawning Portal. So look for it awesome. online at dragonmag.com. I love contacting those old uh, uh, adventure writers and kind of pick their brain as to, as to what they were thinking about. It's like getting like a director's cut, you know, their, their commentary about what it was like being inside their brain whenever they wrote those. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously we, we, uh, we, we mourn Gary Gygax is, is passing from, from years back at this point, but Luke Gygax runs GaryCon, and so he's going to be uh, talking a bit about uh, how Tomb of Horrors ran at GaryCon as well. And for oh, that cool. matter, uh, Hidden Trine of Tomoachan. Great, yeah. yeah. And uh, he, Luke gave us a little bit of insight into what it was like being a kid uh, here on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, uh, months ago even at this point. Um, but yeah, he'll be, he'll be putting that in, in text form in the uh, Dragon Plus, which I'm, I'm excited about. Yeah. And then, of course, Dungeons & Dragons also has some fascinating news going on in the digital realm with D&D Beyond. Uh, Curse Gaming is a... Uh, 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 property that we have partnered with in order to create Dungeons & Dragons tools uh, available on the web. Uh, So any device, it's kind of mobile optimized, but you can access it on the Mac, on the PC, anywhere. And right now we're in the beta testing phase. Uh, We're checking out the first phase is um, more more of the compendium, so Mm -hmm. the basic rules compendium like spells, magic items, uh, and monsters. Uh, So go to dndbeyond.com, sign up for that, and you can download. Actually, no, it's not even a download. You can do it all on the web and uh, test all that out for us. And uh, we'll be coming out with more news about when that's going to be launching uh, as well as pricing in the next couple weeks. But uh, we're excited. People seem to be really uh, gelling into getting this content uh, in, in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they're doing uh, three stages of beta. Uh, the sign-up was announced at uh, PAX East, and now they're already doing um, 
beta testing. So yeah. by the time we're recording, they're in phase one for the compendium side of things. I'm not sure exactly. when they're moving to phase two. They may be even in phase two by the time yeah. you guys hear this, uh, which uh, then then phase four is taking over the world, right. I believe. So I think that's when their plans. It's always, it's always part of it. It's always <laughs> one of those phases. <laughs> Nice. So go go check that out. And of course, uh, we were overwhelmed by the amount of people who signed up for the just the beta test for this. It was uh, uh, exceeded all expectations. We're talking, you know, six, seven, nine figures. No, it wasn't nine figures, but it was pretty high up there. Uh, and so uh, we've been just overwhelmed by the response. And hopefully, people can uh, put it through its rigors and find all the places that uh, can still be improving. Though I think it's pretty, it's, it's a tremendous product mm-hmm. the way it is right now. I'm going to use that and. <laughs> Not try to be political by using the word tremendous, but it sounded very political when I said it. Uh, it's amazing, and uh, you, should, you should check it out. I'm sure every superlative <laughs> has been said at some point by somebody. So, you know, they, everything has. <laughs> there is, I do associate that word with a very specific person. It's, I'll never, yeah. <laughs> He's ruining language, left and right. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another segment of Sage Advice with Jeremy Crawford. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Going well. All right. Today, uh, in our investigation of, uh, of people uh, having a lot of questions about uh, D&D rules, in which Jeremy likes to give the explanations and the uh, idea of the intent behind some of these, uh, we are going to talk about uh, stealth in combat and hiding in combat. And, 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 and even outside of combat. And even outside of combat. Just stealth in general. Yes. This generates a lot of questions, I, I, I see. And, and really, the rest of the segment is just going to be silence, <laughs> because you and I are going to hide. Oh, man, I wish I had a dice in front of me. I'd die so I could be like, oh, all right. Just, you guys just missed your uh, listen. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. they, they, can't, they can't see us, so we already qualify for one of the things of, of, okay, they can't see us, so we get to make our dexterity stealth check, and as long as we remain silent and we roll high enough. All right. Success. All the people in your car who are like, why is this quiet right now? I'm going to go out. Like, oh. <laughs> this, this is Jeremy. Jeremy and Greg demonstrating <laughs> stealth in Dungeons and Dragons. It's an elaborate joke. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to come at uh, this uh, from several different angles because uh, there's the whole dimension of just stealth in general because D&D characters often like to sneak around and their foes often like to sneak up on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this can happen... Uh, in exploration style uh, scenarios, it can happen even in social scenarios. People, you know, hiding out and you know, in the the Duke's grand ball, right, or, eavesdropping, yeah, or you know, that uh, kind of uh, thing. And it can also happen in combat. So stealth is something that comes up a lot, uh, and uh, because of that, it generates a lot of questions. Uh, so first thing uh, to to state upfront is we very intentionally in 5th edition have put stealth in the domain of the DM. Now, that might sound funny for me to say because really the whole game is uh, adjudicated by the dungeon master. Right. But this is actually a rare case uh, in a rule where we right up front uh, in the hiding rule in the player's handbook, uh, which is in uh, the chapter called Using Ability Scores, we tell you the DM decides when circumstances are appropriate for hiding. The reason why we pointed that out is we've tried, I mean, in, in the previous edition, for example, we had a more kind of mechanistic approach to stealth where, you know, provided a very clear-cut set of circumstances in which you could hide. 
the thing is, is that works when you're dealing primarily with stealth and combat, mm. but because so much of D&D happens outside of combat, you know, again, we just talked about a few possibilities. You're eavesdropping, you're trying to avoid notice in a crowd, um, you're, you're trying to escape a dangerous situation and, you know, avoid notice. Right, the requirements of needing cover or something like that doesn't it, always apply. And, and there, there are a lot of environmental factors that can come into play, the quality of light, how noisy a place is, mm-hmm. uh, are there things to hide behind? Creating a distraction. Exactly, you know, and how attentive are, the, are your potential observers? Uh, so many factors that we decided this is where uh, we just need to right up front acknowledge this more than almost any other part of the game is going to rely on the dungeon master, the person who runs the entire environment and all potential observers rely on the DM to, to make some judgment calls. Mm-hmm. Which can mean there are cases where the DM might decide no roles are even necessary. Because a group might, you know, say, all right, we're going to dash out of the Duke's grand ball, avoiding notice. And the DM might decide, well, the dancing troupe in the ball, because they just accidentally set the curtains on fire and there are people screaming and running uh, in in the grand hall, they're not even paying attention. So basically, you know, the... The group, if they even rolled effectively, would have a plus infinity (laughs) on their checks and no stealth roll is even required. Right. Um, But. And that aids in like uh, creativity and it gives a little bit more agency to the players so they don't need to, uh, uh, you know, uh, fulfill some obligations that are in the rules. It can be a little bit more uh, a narrative style of of talking about stealth. Right. And, And again. This is true for all, the entire game. It's all in the DM's hands. The DM is always making judgment calls uh, based on circumstances in the world that the DM is weaving together with the players. Mm-hmm. But again, this is an area where we just wanted to make it doubly clear. Right. Really, 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 the DM uh, is is going to be the referee on how this works. And because of that, I'm sure that's the reason why it generates so many questions, though, because there are players who might argue for X, and a dungeon master might say, no, you can't do that because of Y, uh, and then they come to Twitter and try to attack you <laughs> and be like, well, who's right? Well, and and this is a case where, again, the the it's always true that the, you know, the DM is, is the final arbiter at a particular table. Uh, but more than ever, it has to be true with stealth, and here's why. Often, when you're sneaking around and when your foes are sneaking around, there is hidden information. You as players don't know everything because that's, that's why we're even talking about stealth. Uh, if, if someone else is sneaking up on you, well, you don't know it. You don't have all the information. And so the DM, this is also an area where the DM has to kind of hold their cards a little mm. closer to their chest than they do normally yeah. uh, with certain things in the game. you got to have a bit of a poker face. Yeah, because otherwise you can have situations where all the drama is lost because, well, it's obvious that you know, this, this sneaky situation is happening. So with that out of the way, let's talk about the mechanics themselves. Uh, when you want to hide, uh, you typically make a dexterity stealth check and... You, as always, are hoping for a high number, and it's opposed by the wisdom perception checks of anyone who might be actively looking for you. Key here is actively. Uh, The hiding rule makes it clear that most of the time, you're actually not opposing your stealth check to someone's active 
wisdom perception check, you're actually opposing it to their passive perception score. Mm. Every every creature in the game, and it's even printed in all the monster stat blocks in the monster manual and in our other books, they have a passive perception score. Because we assume that everyone just has a, a certain baseline situational awareness, which basically functions as the DC for your stealth check. And... Uh, and that was an innovation for for fifth, correct? Uh, no, this is perception? this is actually something we started doing in fourth edition. It was okay. Yeah, and I, I like that idea of separating the idea of there being someone who's who's you know searching out you know people who might be screwing up with them versus uh, uh, just you know casual observers. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a huge change to to at least how I, I approach the idea of stealth. So so the key though, and this is where it it. Uh, it differs a little bit from a regular DC, and that is you don't want to hit the number, you want to exceed it. Mm. Um, it because, because of the opposed. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so normally, if a player character hides, tries to, the DM will just hear whatever the result is from the stealth check, take a look at the passive perceptions, of any p- potential observers and see, well, did they notice? Mm-hmm. And then the and the player may or may not know uh, if they were noticed. So another part of this rule is as soon as the player makes that check, that dexterity stealth check, they keep that result, whatever the total is uh, from that from that check. They keep it until someone discovers them or they decide they're they're going to stop hiding. Mm. Uh, so this is relevant uh, particularly in combat because one of the actions that you can take in combat on your turn is to hide. I mean, you need to spend your whole action doing it. Uh, and this rule means if, let's say, you want to hide for multiple rounds, you don't keep making dexterity stealth checks round after round. Mm. You just you make it once. You, you Basically what this means is you only have to spend one action trying to hide. Uh, and then once you've done it, you keep whatever that result was until you're no longer hidden. And again, that's either because you've you've run out of hiding, uh, or you know you made a loud noise, uh, or someone discovered you. As soon as as soon as that happens, even one person discovers you, uh, basically that nullifies whatever you rolled. And if you want to hide again, you're going to have to make another check. And what that means in combat, that means you're going to have to spend your action doing it again. What if, for example, though, you uh, hide around a corner of, mm-hmm. a, of a hallway from someone who's in, you know, an enemy that's in the hallway? You get that. You pe- you, so you're hiding around a corner. You're still hidden, but you decide to move and we go into a room as well. Do you still use the initial stealth check or do you have to roll again when you're moving? Uh, you do not have to roll again. Interesting. Yeah, you. The main the main thing you have to do to once once you have made your check, the main thing you have to do to remain hidden is make sure people can't see you clearly, and make sure you're not making a bunch of noise. Mm-hmm. And the number that you get from your check really determines how well are you succeeding at those things. How well are you succeeding at staying out of sight and staying quiet? And that's ultimately what hiding means. Hiding, if you're hidden, the way the rules define it, it means you're both uh, not noticed uh, visually mm-hmm. and, it, and you're not uh, heard. People, people can't hear you. 
you're still obviously making a little bit of noise unless you're magically completely silenced. Yeah. Um, and you might even be technically visible, uh, but let's say you're creeping through some fog, you might be creeping just well enough and being just quiet enough uh, that people don't notice you. Now, is uh, that rule to, to speed up play uh, as far as so not making sure you have to roll a stealth check every every round? Or Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we in general don't, don't want people to have to make a bunch of rolls for really what is a single process. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only when is basically that process ends uh, is it time for a new roll. Got it. Um, and also we want you to be able to do other things on your turn, especially when we switch to the combat context. Uh, we don't want make, to make hiding so onerous that uh, it essentially becomes something you never want to do. Uh, right, that's the only thing you can do on your round. Right, it right. And it becomes unfun. And, and you, there are a number of things that have to stay true for you to remain hidden uh, once you've made your check. And that, again, is you have to make sure you're not sort of just standing right out in the open uh, with no visual obstruction at all, and you're not, like, screaming or, you know, shattering things uh, and whatnot. Um, the stealthiest screamer around, that's me. <laughs> now... We even say, though, right in the stealth rule, this is going back to this is a part of the game firmly in the DM's hands. We even say that the being out in the open part, the DM can ignore if the circumstances are right. Like, you might be sneaking up on somebody who's watching, uh, let's say, uh, some minstrels perform on uh, a street of, of Waterdeep. And they might be so engrossed by the performance that even though it's broad daylight, there's no fog... Uh, and you're just walking right up behind the person, the DM might decide, well, you know, your dexterity stealth check was good enough, and this person is so distracted, I'm going to let you do this right out in the open. Mm. Um, now, the DM might decide, though, okay, this guy's distracted, so I'm going to let you just, I'm going to let you attempt this, but you might get a lousy roll, which means, oh, maybe you bumped into somebody, you tripped. You did something to give your position away. Mm. Uh, or even if you, the DM might decide, maybe you didn't give your position away, but it just means you, you utterly failed to sneak up on this person. Uh, so again, it's a great example of the environment really plays a big role in the attentiveness of other people. Uh, Makes sense. Now, going back to passive perception, uh, this is, as its name implies, passive and it's considered to be always on unless you're under the effect of a condition like um, the unconscious condition that says you're not aware of your surroundings. Uh, that really, the practical effect of that is basically your passive perception is shut off. Mm. Uh, passive perception is on basically whenever you're conscious and aware. Uh, advantage and disadvantage can be applied to it. Uh, if you have advantage on uh Pass on, let's say, perception checks in general, uh, then it would affect your passive perception by giving you a plus five. Uh, similarly, if you have disadvantage, you have minus five uh, to your passive perception score. Mm. Because it's passive, a player does not get to say they use it. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't something people... <laughs> I'm using my passive perception yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's always on. That's the baseline. Yeah. Now, this brings up questions because then people were saying, well, how is it that when I make a, a, an active uh, perception check, I might, get a role that, I, I might get a role that's lower? Well, you aren't, 
Yes, that role is lower, but remember, your passive perception is always on. So it really represents the floor of your perception. Right. If you, let's say you- That's an important distinction though. Yes, and, uh, and so if you make an active perception check and you get a number that's lower than your passive perception, all that means is you did a lousy job of this particular active search, but your passive perception is still active. You're still going to notice something that blips onto your passive perception radar. Mm. Really, when you make that roll, you're really rolling to see, can I get a higher number? If you fail to, well, again, your passive perception score is still active. Um, it, it is effectively creating that that minimum. The minimum. Yeah. Yeah, because, and then so, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily clear to a lot of dungeon masters out there because they will be like, oh, well, the, the opposed nature of this role means that uh, uh, you just were really bad at looking. And even though you're the person who's sneaking up, you only got like a five, they're able to do so. Now, many, many of these sorts of situations would be erased if DMs just simply remembered to use the passive perception in the first place. Yeah. Because honestly, if... If something is noticeable by a person's passive perception score, they should already have noticed it. Mm. <laughs> so the the really the the active search is trying to find something that you haven't already noticed, and your passive perception score represents what you have already noticed. Uh, so that I think that sometimes that that interaction sometimes uh, isn't entirely clear in groups' minds, and yeah. I think keeping that in mind would make certain uh, perception and stealth situations clearer. Now, what are some other corner cases that uh, that pop up here? So a biggie is invisibility. Mm. Uh, there are questions that come up about the interaction of uh, invisibility, it, how it interacts with with hiding in general. Invisibility typically comes from magic, although other effects in the game can make you literally invisible. Uh, whatever the source of your invisibility, whether it's an environmental effect, it's a spell, or something else, you are then subject to the invisible uh, condition. And what this condition says is, uh, first off, any attack roll against you has disadvantage because people can't see you, so it's hard to target you. And you have advantage on all of your attack rolls because since people can't see you executing the attack, it's harder for them to dodge it. Uh, it also means that you are technically heavily obscured for the purposes of trying to hide. In mm. other words, if you're invisible, you can always try to hide. Now, people wonder, well, what does hiding give me on top of being invisible? Because people already can't see me. Hiding gives you the second piece. They can't hear you. Mm. Because if you're dashing around, swinging your sword in combat, <laughs> well, then even more so if you're yelling to your friends while you're invisible, you're not hiding. People can't see you. Uh, but they can certainly hear you. Yeah, they're getting some clues as to where you may be. Yeah, or if you know you're you're swinging your sword mightily, um, and it's an invisibility effect that allows you to stay invisible while attacking. Well, you know your sword swings are you know they might they might clip through bushes if you're fighting out in a forest. Uh, they might stir up dust around. Um, so for the invisible person, stealth and and more precisely hiding can still be important if you really want to make sure people uh, don't realize you're there. Mm -hmm. Because, again, as soon as you're making that dexterity stealth check, it's going beyond, do they see me? It's, do they hear me? Do they just notice my presence in general? Because perception goes even beyond uh, 
sight and sound. That's why it's a wisdom modifier in yeah. a way, is because they get some almost intuitive you know, feeling that there's someone in the room or and something in the room they're trying to look at. Exactly, and it's also why we call it perception, not... It's not, you know, did you spot something? Did you hear something? It's a, it, is a, it is a holistic expression of your character's perceptiveness. And so when you're, when you're using stealth, you're opposing that holistic perception with a holistic stealth. You're not just trying to stay out of sight. Right. Um, if you're just staying out of sight, well, then you have the, you have the benefits provided by the invisible condition. Um, or often, a person is out of sight not because they're invisible, it's because they're behind total cover. Well, then you have the benefit of total cover. And so you're already reaping the benefit of being out of sight. Either mm-hmm. it's because you're behind total cover or because you're benefiting from the invisible condition. Those things already have an, a lot of great built-in benefits. What, again, hiding does is it pushes you a little beyond. It means, oh, they might not even know I'm here. Right. Uh, or they have no idea where I am. You know, they're going to need to guess. Now, in some cases, a DM will decide that even an invisible person's location is unknown to combatants mm. uh, because this goes back to what we were saying before of the environment and character's attentiveness. It's really up to the DM. The DM might decide that, all right, that wizard who cast invisibility on herself, uh, the orcs, they've lost track of where she is, even though she never bothered to hide, but because the barbarian is screaming in their face and, you know, the, the rogue uh, lit the gunpowder barrels nearby on fire and they just exploded. Uh, they're just not even paying attention. And they don't know where she is. And that's a, that's a call for the DM. Yeah. Right? Just to say, eh, they're not paying attention. Um, they're in the thick of fighting. It doesn't, right, it doesn't even really apply. But we assume that uh, it's also perfectly in keeping with the rules for a group to assume that unless a person hides, people generally know where invisible people are in combat uh, because of just their movements, their sword swings, you know, they're seeing the effect, you know, in the environment, again, either because their their weapon is clipping through bushes or they bumped up against a table as they walked by, mm. you know, see the, the, you see the... Drinks the, wobble. The, yeah, the, the drinks wobble. Um, and we purposefully don't get into the nitty-gritty of this. We just assume, well, you know, because, because also in D&D there's no facing. You know, we're already, our combat system is already abstract in the sense that, you know, characters don't have a front and a back. You know, mm. they're, they're, we don't talk about, well, oh, you, you know, you can see the, only the things in front of you. We assume in our abstract combat that, that characters are looking in every direction, that, you know, their passive perception is still on. Um, they're situationally aware. They're situationally happening. aware, unless something in the game has said, well, now you're not. And most combatants in the Dungeons and Dragons universe are ones that uh, need that 360 awareness in order to survive right. at that point. It's part right. of the fact that they are a leveled opponent almost. Right. Now, again, some people who are aware of this rule will then ponder, well, does this make invisibility useless if we're going to assume uh, someone knows where the invisible person is. Absolutely, it does not make it useless because, again, being invisible gives you the huge advantage. benefit of advantage on your attack rolls against everyone who can't see you. There's disadvantage on all their attack rolls against you, and you can hide whenever you like. And then if a DM decides to sort of take more of a narrative role in how he or she interprets the stealth rule, 
often DMs will just have monsters ignore invisible characters because the monsters are distracted, mm -hmm. um, which is really, in a way, a role-playing choice because playing monsters, and this is something that people forget sometimes, uh, when analyzing rules as opposed to remembering how it feels to actually play the game, that the DM is role-playing the monsters just like uh, players are role-playing their characters. And so in addition to using whatever is in a monster's stat block, DMs are often making choices about what a monster does that are not based on numbers in a stat block. It's based on just the DM's sense of what would this particular orc act like? Uh, what, what, what does this dragon want? And what is this dragon focused on right now? And as a way to separate the, you know, for lack of a better term, the like mooks of, you know, the fighter, like, you know, uh, mm -hmm. if you're battling against monsters that are unintelligent or generally characterized as unintelligent, mm -hmm. okay, they may not focus on the invisibility, you know, but you know, if you're fighting an evil wizard who knows the advantages of, of invisibility, that, that character, that foe might uh, concentrate on the invisible character because of that danger. Right. So it's a way to distinguish uh, as a DM to be like, oh, no, this guy is crafty and he knows some of your tricks. Yeah. Now, Again, to now flip back to the other side, let's say a group wants to just sort of run the rules as bare bones as possible with um, as little DM interpretation as possible with stealth. A group is going to be on really firm ground if they just decide, oh, we just assume combatants always know uh, where invisible characters are unless those characters have hidden themselves. Um, you know, by making a dexterity stealth check. Oh, you're saying when the monsters are hidden? Oh, no, anyone's are, hidden. I mean, I, yeah, invisible. Yeah, yeah you right. can... I, mean, I, I, I know as a player, I've always been like, I kind of know where he is, right? Right. And, and use if that to my advantage. If, again, if they're invisible but not hidden. Yes. Uh, because we've made invisibility so good on its own, it is not... None of its benefits on the game are predicated on people not knowing where you are. Mm. We built the benefits of invisibility into itself. Right. Uh, that, and if you're only getting that, but people always know where you are, you are still in awesome shape. Because the other thing that people often forget is the game is filled with spell effects that require the spellcaster to see their target. So as soon as you become invisibility, and this is actually one of the benefits of invisibility, one of the hugest benefits, especially at high level, you've essentially made yourself immune to some of the most dangerous spell effects in the game. Right. Because some of the most dangerous spell effects in the game, particularly spell effects that dominate characters or might subject them to the possibility of instant death, many such effects require the spellcaster to see the person they're casting the spell out. So even if you have a general idea of where they are, Doesn't you still do you can't any good. cast them. Now, exactly. a fireball... Fireball is still going to get that person. It's still going to get that person, right. Yeah. And that is generally why wizards <laughs> will do fireballs where they think they, you know, adventurers may be for that reason. But yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So because that's... Yeah, listeners, take a look at the number of spells that just say things along the... Or, and also class features that say things along the lines of, you know, you choose one creature you can see within range... That can see means they're invisible. If they're invisible, you can't target them. Even if they're screaming their lungs out and you know exactly where they are, but because you can't see them, you can't cast the spell on them. And that's what I mean. Invisibility has so many benefits built into it that uh, 
it doesn't need to be effective. The little, the frosting added on top of it that mm-hmm. stealth provides of truly making your location unknown. Uh, but again, in certain circumstances, you want that frosting uh, for often for narrative reasons. Yeah. And often because you're trying to get out of danger I, or you want to start an ambush, uh, that kind of thing. I always want frosting. <laughs> as much frosting as possible. Yeah. Oh, now I'm, now I'm thinking. Yeah, I know. Maybe frosting. It's, it's getting close to lunchtime. So uh, <laughs> me, me and Jeremy are getting hungry. Um, but going back to stealth in, in combat. So uh, I, I, we've touched on a little bit, but I'm sure there will be some uh, uh, groups who will try to be like, well, in combat, stealth is not going to work for, for X, Y, and Z. And I think what you've tried to establish is that, you know, there, there are circumstances where you can hide in combat. Absolutely. Invisibility being one of them. Well, yeah, because if you're invisible, you can always try to hide. Right. Um, but what are some other situations that uh, might so, arise or you get questions so, about? So, again, one of, the, one of the basic actions in combat is hide. We expect people to be able to hide in combat. Uh, but you still have to follow the normal rules of hiding, and that means when you try to hide, you need to hide someplace where people can't see you clearly, um, and you need to then keep quiet. So if your character, you know, says, all right, I'm hiding over here, and you make your stealth check, and then you start yelling to your friends, well, you're... I'm hidden, yeah, guys. Yeah. They can't see me. I'm yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, well, nope, you're not hidden. Because, <laughs> <laughs> again, hidden hidden means both. They can't see you clearly, and they can't hear you clearly. Um, or the more, the more uh, concise way we state it in the rules is you are unseen and you are unheard. Um, uh, because of your successful role. Uh, and absolutely, you can try it in combat. Uh, that's intentional. Uh, we want especially rogues to be able to do it. Uh, this is why rogues can even try to hide with their bonus action using cunning action. Mm. Um, Which is important for, yeah. for their other class feature of the sneak attack to exactly. be able to... to Throw that down uh, with, when when hidden, when there's no you know other combatants around them. That's that's very important. And, and this is especially important for rogues uh, who are primarily ranged attackers, because mm. there are some rogues who um, like to attack at range. And one of their one of their effective ways to get their sneak attacks in is to you know sneak around, hide, launch an attack. Then on a later then turn, hide, hide again, again. Yep. Uh, because this leads to another rule with with stealth, and this is from the combat chapter in the player's handbook. If you've hidden yourself, you're unseen and you're unheard uh, because you you got a good enough uh, dexterity stealth check. You do give away your location. In other words, you nullify being hidden uh, when you hit or miss with an attack. Now we word it that way. Because the rule, I mean, it's actually the wording is very specific here. Mm-hmm. We didn't say you give your position away when you attack. It's specifically when you hit or miss. The reason why I worded it that way is because I want you to get the benefit of being hidden for your role. And the benefit is you get advantage on it. So you do get advantage on your attack roll as you fire from, you know, the rooftop where you were hiding or wherever it is yeah. that you're you're... You're, you're being stealthy. Yeah, that, that language directly states that all you, you are unhidden after damage is resolved, essentially. Right. Like the moment, the moment that that attack connects or fails to connect, you've given away your position. Right. So like, if you were to, when you make an attack, you're, 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 uh, you're no longer hidden, then that's where 
confusion might might come in if if that's what the rule said. But yeah. again, it's yeah, but, it's, yeah. So that's why you made the change change yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, now, what this what the stealth rules mean though is you cannot let's say let's say you ran and you hid behind a big boulder. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 made a you know a solid solid dexterity stealth check. You're out of sight. No one can hear you. And you decide, okay, I want to run out and stab that guy in the back. And so people will wonder, okay, do I get advantage on this attack roll? Well, you don't if, let's say, you, let's say the guy is 30 feet away from the place where you were uh, hiding out, and you run straight out into the open and then execute a melee attack. Well, you revealed your location when you started running out into the open. Um, so the, the benefit of being hidden doesn't stick with you all the way up to a hit or miss mm. if, if, if you've basically invalidated being hidden before you even make the attack roll. Um, whereas ranged attackers in particular can often gain uh, the benefit of being hidden when they make their attack because they can make the attack from the place where they're where they're hiding out. You know, they're in the the, the heavy foliage, uh, they're up in the treetops, they're up on the the uh, the roof of a building, and so you know that that split second where they emerge just to make the attack, uh, they get that benefit. Now, a melee attacker can similarly benefit if, let's say, their target is standing right at the corner that they're hiding behind. And so essentially, if the melee attacker doesn't have to move anywhere to make the attack, if they can make the attack from the place where they're hiding, they get the benefit. And that's really, that's sort of to really drill into the heart of the rule. If you're hidden and you can make the attack from the place where you are hidden, Mm -hmm. whether it's a melee attack or a ranged attack, you get the benefit. But the moment you hit or miss... You're no longer hidden. No longer hidden. Yeah. What? A, so you mentioned not being having to move from the hiding space, but say a rogue is hiding behind a barrel, um, and the evil spellcaster is ten feet away, uh, casting. Uh, yeah, and this you do, facing is not in Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm assuming that like okay, his back is to the barrel, and the, but the rogue wants to make a melee attack, but has to move ten feet just to get in range. So without a special ability, without a spell or a class feature or a feat that says otherwise, the rogue would reveal themselves on their way to the person ten feet away. What if they? What if you asked for a stealth roll? No, this is sneaking up. So, most, so this is this is where we flip back to um, the dungeon master, the dungeon it. master making a judgment call. Because again, we actually give an example of what you just described in the hiding rule. That a DM might allow that, might allow you to sneak up on the person, uh, even though normally you couldn't because they are so distracted. Got it. Um, That's where situational calls <clears throat> need to be made by the DM. Exactly. And it's up to them whether they would need a new, you know, because essentially we'd be coming out of hiding uh, and whether we need a new stealth check or use the old stealth check, you know. It would, it's very hard for you guys to design the rules in which all corner cases are, are, are done. So this makes a little bit of sense that the DM has to make that call. I mean, we, we could do it. Um, and, and actually, um, sort of you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit, uh, I had a far more complex version of the stealth rules uh, written mm. uh, in the lead up to 5th edition. And I gutted them uh, for the simple rules we have now 
because we decided they were just too complex. They were trying to account for all of these corner cases. And this is, this is a case where we didn't want corner cases making the simple thing no longer simple. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is, while we like to be clear and we like to give as many tools to our players and DMs as possible, we'd never want to go down a road where in the process of accounting for corner cases, we've made the non-corner case a drag. Mm. We want to make sure the thing you're doing most of the time, the thing that's going to come up in your D&D sessions over and over and over and over again, we want that to be painless and fun. The last thing we want to do is make that thing that might come up once every 20 sessions, make the thing you do all the time extra complicated just so that once every 20 session thing would have a rule. Yeah. We'd rather say, we're going to make the thing you do session after session after session, fun and straightforward. And we're going to rely on the DM to handle that one in 20 case. And, um, you know, through our printed material and through stuff on our website and through segments like this, yes. give some stage advice to the DM <laughs> on how to handle those corner <laughs> cases, but not necessarily have to, you know, codify it all in, uh, in, in complicated rules mechanics. I yeah. mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, that sounds like... You know, uh, our previous editions have done that for various other 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 topics to uh, to varying success, and I'm I'm glad and, that in this case. And 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 to be honest, there are even places in the current edition where um, I look at it and I'm like, oof, we could have made this tighter. <laughs> it could have made this simpler. I um, love that that oof. <laughs> <laughs> well, because because uh, uh, some listeners have probably heard me or other uh, game designers say this sort of thing before. But it is actually way more work to make something simple than it is to make something complex. Yeah, uh, it, it's actually quite easy for us to write out. Uh, Here are the twenty corner cases yes. that we've encountered and how to deal with each one of them. And it's you know a forty-page chapter, uh, you know, in order to make it all happen. Like that's it's, it's more words, but it's actually less. It is uh, less complex for us to do that. Mm-hmm. than to create something that is straightforward, repeatable, fun, easy to understand. Um, yeah, and that's hard to do. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I when I look at the game, uh, I often am seeing places where, oh, we could have made that even clearer. Uh, we could have we could have made that even simpler. Yeah. And, and by simpler, simple, uh, also uh, to make sure people understand, when we talk about that, we're not talking about dumbing it down or making it less rich. No, we mean it's easy to get into and easy to use repeatedly and easy to master because mm-hmm. that's the other thing we want is we want every piece of the game to feel like a tool that players and DMs, DMs in particular, can pick up and use with confidence yeah. and, and not have this lurking suspicion that, oops, somewhere there's a corner case rule waiting behind a bush to jump out at me yeah. and undermine my understanding of the rules. Well, and it's easier to, to memorize in a way, too. Like for yeah. a DM, you can be like, well, well, most of these things make sense because I can remember clearer ideas and simple thoughts a, a little bit better than I can, you know, the 20 pages of corner case, you know, rules minutiae that I was, that I was using before. So... Uh, well, thank you for that, and I think this makes uh, you know, definitely clears up any questions I might have had on on the stealth and how to make it use. And I hope it uh, clears up our listeners' questions. Um, if they do have more, though, not necessarily about stealth, but other other parts of the rules, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, I can be reached on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Jeremy E Crawford.
And and I have a feeling I will get more questions about stuff. It always happens, and yes. we'll and of course you know uh, if if more enough come up, we'll we'll do another segment and, and revisit some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I think uh, many of the topics that we discuss in this segment uh, involve further investigation. Yeah. and uh, it's always great to hear your insight on that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Awesome. So I think I have to kill him in order to get that job. Is that true? Like a druid, right? You kind of have to, like, the old school druids where you had to, like, kill the, 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 the it rank was. ahead of you in order to ascend in level. I, that would be cool if all classes sort of implemented a system like that. I don't what know. about all people in life? Like, not... <laughs> 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 That's the new uh, Highlander class coming. Exactly, there can only be right? one. There can only be one. Of anything. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, that was James Heck. Heck, Hake. I did it wrong. Hake. You got it right the first time. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Uh, uh, who is our guest for this? And you're in the office itself, so it always is, is you know, we're used to people calling in, so having you here is great. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Oh, it's fantastic. It's it's like walking into a magical realm to be here. It, well, it's, it's well some, in some ways, this is where the magic happens, but mm. we, I like to say that's where the D&D happens, but, you know, it happens. Uh, but, um, so yeah, uh, so you are an adventure writer, and you're based in L.A. right now, but you said you're a, a Seattle native, is that right? Yeah, I'm from, I'm from Shoreline, just a little bit north. I uh, lived there most of my life. And real soon, probably this summer, I'll be coming back up here and being a Seattle native again. Sweet. You're a Pacific Northwest through and through. I I couldn't leave it if I tried. I love it too much here. So did you go to Wizards of the Coast game stores in your youth? Man, I remember seeing one at Northgate Mall when I was young. And I I wasn't into magic then. I wasn't into D&D because I was in single-digit ages. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it always looked cool. It always looked like this cave of wonder. Um, It's kind of dark, and there are all these lights going around in it. I was like, oh, that looks cool, and I never went in. So, oh, well. That's kind of like what their offices are like, with lots of color lights (laughs) and, and EDM music playing in the background. Um, but no, I was, it, it's funny, I, I was on the East Coast uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s, so I never saw Wizards of the Coast game stores uh, ever. They didn't really make it out that far, at least in my neck of the woods. So whenever people people talk about that, I'm always like, what, there was a store that was Wizards of the Coast branded? I didn't know that. And see, that's usually sometimes the only thing I hear about Wizards yeah. of the Coast. Is, hey, I work for Wizards of the Coast. And I'm like, oh, didn't you guys used to run some stores? Like, oh, yes, but the, yeah. <laughs> we got <kind of> also <laughs> run some great brands now, Exactly, too. right, like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, especially people in this area who, who grew up here because that was their their, their thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you said you didn't, you didn't play a lot of Magic or D anD D when you were a kid. When did you? When did that bug first get you? Okay, um, I've got a I've got a pretty cool story about my my start in D anD D because I I didn't know really what D anD D was besides like it's a nerd thing, and I and I was a total nerd, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Um, I knew of it culturally, yeah. but I didn't know what in the hell it actually was. Or how to play. Or, what. or how to play, or, or even like what people did to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but I played a lot of video games. I played a lot of uh, Super Smash Bros, especially with mm. my, my friends in elementary school. And one day in sixth grade, I think, out of recess, I got this grand idea to play this pretend game with all of my friends where they all played as Super Smash Bros. characters. And I I drafted up these basically character sheets for them, and I I talked them through adventures. And without knowing myself, I had inadvertently created the greatest mashup of D&D and Nintendo properties of all time. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
You like it, spontaneously made D and D without I just knowing spon- you were making D and D. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was like a little bit of cultural osmosis that I just never caught on, but really, no one in my sphere. Uh, knew what D&D was or how to play. Right. Um, so it, the idea just came to me for whatever reason. I, I did a lot of, uh, later on, before coming to D&D, sort of uh, online play-by-post, role-play, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And eventually, with that same group of people, um, right before high school, I, I got this idea, now knowing more what D&D was, saying, hey, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we uh, played a, a tabletop, a, a pen and paper game? And so I I, I, again, not having any D&D books or knowing anyone who had any D&D books, I made something up. And it was the worst dice system in the world. It was made out of a D6, a D8, and a D12 that I had from, like, a Lego board game um, (laughs) just hanging around the house. And I ran them through this dungeon on quarter-inch grids. And people had fun. And I remember nothing about it except there was a troll and you rolled a D8 whenever you attacked. And if you got an 8, you had a crit. Um, it's a pretty good system. It's, it's the most <laughs> inventive system of its time. <laughs> um, but but through that, one of my one of my high school friends, uh, the summer of my freshman year, told me, "Hey, well, you know, I've got some actual D and D books. How about I uh, run a real campaign?" I said, "Well, sure, Angus, you can do that, and I'll I'll join in." And all the friends gathered at a game store uh, that's closed now, but it was a great place. Um, up in Edmonds. It was a Fantastic Games. It's this cool little underground kind of dungeon of a store that had half of its space dedicated to just D&D tables. That's awesome. A lot of people played Warhammer, too. I didn't know what that was back then. Um, And so he he ran this campaign sort of off the cuff, um, improvising a lot of it. And I played uh, a ranger named Mars, and he looked just like Aragorn. Nice. Um, because I was a, you know, <laughs> oh well, uh, my Many first character. Were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he couldn't hit anything. He always had a bow and he always rolled lower than a 10. He couldn't hit anything. And so Angus, my DM, took pity on me and he gave me this homebrew helmet thing that made me hit better. And I still couldn't hit anything. Ah. So I said to him, well, hey, do you mind if I DM for a little while? And he said, okay, sure. Um, and I, I didn't was it play. Was just the two a, of you or was there other people too? No, there were uh, four or five other players okay, with cool. us. I mean, I just got so fed up with not being able to, like, do anything as a player. I said, let me try this for a bit. And I had all these story ideas. And I, I didn't get out from behind the DM screen again for two years. And so I, by that point, we were well-versed in third edition. And I started uh, going through the, I don't, I don't know, the, the legit way of creating monsters. It's like, oh, I'll... I'll increase its hit dice and then Mm. it moves its size category up and that changes all of these things and I did that for one gargoyle and I thought okay let's do something else let's (laughs) let's try something a little simpler Um, and that's that's when I was that's why I was so happy when fifth edition came about that was a renaissance of D&D for me Mm. uh, because it gave me a lot of control to create things that I wanted from a story standpoint and have it translate really simply into mechanics that I understood without fiddly hit dice affecting monster size and all that stuff. Right, right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had a very similar but opposite first experience when I played Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> with a group in in, uh, in Connecticut in my youth where I was I also played a ranger because I was like mm-hmm. uh, at the time it was Tannis Half-Elven that I loved. Nice. Uh, uh, so I was like, yeah, I can be him. Right? And we, I joined this group and they were all kind of like skeptical because I was a lot younger than they were. They mm-hmm. were in high school and I was like, you know, early middle school really. Uh, and, uh, 
they uh, they opened me you know, open arms and we, they got into an encounter with uh, something that was coming at them. I'm like I'm gonna shoot it with my bow even though the, my the the fighter was attacking it and I hit the fighter. I, I rolled a one and I hit the fighter <laughs> oh, no. once and I did a little bit of damage to him because I was pretty low, low level. And he's in that fight, and I'm like, well, it can't happen again. So I attack again, right? Hit him again. Nope. And he dies. He died from that. <laughs> and so he's the, like the veteran leader of the group who's like pissed that he can't play in this encounter anymore. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And they all end up, I think it ended up being a TPK. Oh, no. And, you know, the, the DM, who is the friend who kind of recruited me and got me on board, like, you know, definitely made it feel like I wasn't, it wasn't my fault or anything like that. But I didn't end up playing really again after that. <laughs> yeah. So it's the opposite. I, I, I took away other, other people's fun, not just the fact that I couldn't hit anything. I actually killed my players. Perfect. Yeah. So don't do that <laughs> on, your first, on your first session. That's how uh, friendships are born, right? <laughs> you take away what they love. Exactly. No, don't do that. Yeah. So when you were creating those, when you were first doing the, the pseudo D&D, when mm-hmm. you were kind of teaching yourself about it with, without even knowing about the, the game itself, were you looking to emulate level design from the video games you were playing, or were you sort of just looking at those as influences and you were going to create your uh, pen and paper level designs based on them? Like, yeah. What was the, the relationship uh, well, between the... Well, back, back when I was doing stuff diceless and practically paperless uh, mm-hmm. back on, you know, in recess playgrounds, it was like I... It was so freeform that level design was... Uh, based off things that I just saw in the world around me. Like, I, I based a dungeon off the shape of my, my trombone and band once. <laughs> it was really cool. There were all these valves that you changed, and, like, suddenly new passages opened up. But it was it was the... the Did it move? Did there, was there a slider where the, 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 <laughs> yes. the hallways got very long uh, when yeah. you're doing the E note at the end? i got to go back to that concept. That's a cool... <laughs> <laughs> Your party shrinks down to, uh, to pixie size, and they're, and they're in a band now. <laughs> a big brass band. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it, w- it was all, uh, I-, I emulated a lot of uh, characters that I knew because that was familiar to me and was familiar to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I used a lot of names that people recognized, but I had so many uh, ideas of just cool things to do, places to go to, that no, existing level design was never a, a consideration in my mind. But looking back uh, from here where I am now, a lot of the uh, adventures and maps and scenarios that I've created recently owe uh, an incredible debt of gratitude to games I played when I was really young. Mm-hmm. Um, strategy games, uh, adventure games, even just like fighting games, because those have incredible terrain ideas. Uh, and in D&D, if you're using a grid, uh, if you've decided to go really tactical with it, um, that's one of the coolest ways to make dynamic encounters is to create environments that inspire incredible ideas. You know, the obvious uh, example is swing on a chandelier. But what if you have been playing a lot of the recent Legend of Zelda game? And mm-hmm. one of the things about that is whenever grass catches fire, it creates an updraft and you can catch the updraft on your little paraglider. Oh, no And way. you can just fly 60 feet up. And wouldn't that be a cool idea if you were fighting next to this pit of lava and you had like like a, a bed sheet, and you said, "Well, I want to I want to try and sail up on the the convection of air going up." And you said, "Wow, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Go for it!" Yeah. And then you know I'll sail over and I'll sneak attack onto the dragon's back or something like that. That's dynamic play. That's stuff that people tell stories about. It's not just um, a ten foot by ten foot open plane where two armies run together and beat each other a lot. Right. And you. Uh, uh, uh 
I mean, fighting the like fighting game design, like you were mentioning, um, uh, Super Smash Brothers Brawl, like that's all about the different levels and how you can go up and down and knock yeah. people off and do all that. And an expert player gets better at that kind of stuff. That's one of the the hardest things that uh, I've come to uh, work with in D and D design is often when people meet in a melee combat, they just stick there. They just stand in one spot and they they duke it out until one guy falls over. Um, but if you if you want to make a combat that's always in motion, there's give and take, uh, you you look for things that allow that to happen. You look for cliff sides to crumble away. You look for maybe you give an enemy a warlock level and their Eldritch Blast pushes people away. Right. Um, okay, I'm going to go back to the, the first campaign I ever ran. Um, and, <laughs> the, and the worst mistake I ever made in the name of dynamic design... Um, <laughs> One of my players uh, turned evil, and that was an awesome plot point. He was this warlock who had a pet golem um, that was the soul of his brother or something like that. And they, the entire party was on uh, this mission to stop a warlock, uh, his brother, from turning everyone into machines, basically. Mm-hmm. So they went to this volcano, and I had this awesome boss encounter for my player-turned-rogue. And I set him on this stony pillar in the middle of a sea of magma, which was the worst decision I've ever made because the siren in the party just mind-pushed him, and he fell 50 feet into lava and died, and that was the encounter. (laughs) (laughs) And I still get crap over that to this day. You're like, this is going to be the best design ever. This is going to be wild. Oh, well, there he goes. That's why playtesting is (laughs) important. I forgot about that one very specific thing called gravity. (laughs) No, but it it, it does speak to something that it sounds like you're doing as an adventure designer, which which is setting these scenarios, these encounter areas that aren't just to the advantage of the opponent that you're facing, but also allowing the players to find tactical elements that they can play around with Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. That, that, was, that was a lot of the fun of, of, of fourth edition, I thought, was it encouraged experiments into that way of, of, of setting up encounters. Yeah, no, very much so. It's, it's, a, it's a good sort of compact to have between players and Dungeon Masters, where right. the, the, the players should be allowed, should be encouraged to try wacky, crazy things, and the Dungeon Masters should be encouraged to, to let kind of understand they're not doing that necessarily to gain that instant kill advantage, <laughs> right. although it worked out well in, in, in that case, yeah. but, but just to have more uh, dynamic time around the table at, in, in the combat encounter, and then everyone's <laughs> going to enjoy it more. Exactly. I mean, in some ways, you created the perfect boss encounter and that people are still talking about it, you know, yeah. after the fact. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you don't want it to be forgettable. Right. No, absolutely. And as, as long as it has those, uh, even if it's one unique thing, even if it's one cool thing that... Uh, that differentiates it from all the other dragon lairs in the world. People gravitate to that. People, people like what's familiar, mm-hmm. um, but they also love at least a little bit of spice. Mm-hmm. Um, D&D is great because it's all about the familiar. People know what fantasy is. People know the conventions of the genre and what mm-hmm. they can be. Um, but then even players, they start tweaking it. Yeah. Um, uh, I was telling you this, Greg, before we started recording, but my current campaign right now is set in a world where the humans and elves and dwarves and halflings are the bad guys. They're, these, mm-hmm. they're this colonial imperial force that's come from across the waves, and all of the monsters that we think are normally the, the bad guys are trying to rebel against the Empire. And it feels like Star Wars, yeah. but it also feels like D&D. And people have this interesting flavor mix that they get to play. Um, that's and, and yeah, and books like Volo's Guide, the the ones that you don't you don't expect. It's not just a player's handbook too. Mm-hmm. Those those cool little off the wall things 
end up being the, the perfect gift yeah. to this style of play. Are you using all the uh, the the monster races guidelines in there to create all those characters? Yeah, um, oh, my, cool. my party right now uh, is a, a tiefling and Asimar. So there's you know there's that there, uh, a Kenku, a Furbolg. And this this one pure-hearted little elf boy. Oh. <laughs> this is this heart of gold in the midst of the, the revolution. He's like, I'm the good elf, not yeah. the uh, you know imperialistic elf. I'm, he's he's uh, he's Finn in the new Star Wars. He's yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, I see where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with all the Rogue One hype, I could see like how this could. Uh, That's how it started. Yeah. Yep. It makes a lot of sense. I was actually thinking actually I saw that movie. I was like, oh man, I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, I want to make a D and D campaign that's like all about everybody dying at the end. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> if my players are listening, uh, your campaign won't end like Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> that you know, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, he's he's got a, coda, a poker face on right now. It's crazy. Uh, so I wanted to go back to what you were talking about uh, uh, Super Smash Brothers because I know uh, Matt Mercer worked on a show called uh, There Will Be Brawl. Yes. And I'm sure the two of you, while you were uh, interning at uh, uh, Geek and Sundry and then now working on uh, uh, the source book for um, all of his stuff for Green Ronin, mm-hmm. uh, you guys have geeked out about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, that's one of the things we've never actually had the chance to just sit down and talk about uh, Super Smash Bros. It's, it's such an underlying influence for me. Uh, it, it just, uh, those Nintendo properties are so formative to my experience. Smash Bros, Zelda, yeah. Fire Emblem. Um, and nowadays, you know, I don't go making homebrew stuff that incorporates that, but but you see it. You see it in, in the design. Right. And uh, whether it's for encounter design, using a tactical map like a Fire Emblem game, or if it's story design, um, I love including mythic elements into adventures that feel like a legend retold. Mm. Zelda has this this great uh, epic feel to it because it's it's a very it's a very basic story, but it's it it's interesting in its variations. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I love I love finding those variations. I've been saying this a lot. Uh, but but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just like the idea of taking stuff that people are familiar with and tweaking it like that. That's exactly what Matt did when he was making that show. There will be yeah. all. I don't know if you guys know this was a it was basically like the Mushroom Kingdom if it were a uh, a crime drama. Uh, and uh, and that the, the the Mario Brothers were basically fighting against Ganon who's basically like a uh, you know, like a crime boss that was taking over, and then you know, I watched. And then that there was show. analogs about. I that. watched yeah. that show. I had no idea. Yeah, Matt was in that. I know. Oh my I, God, isn't that crazy? He he was one of the creators, and he I think he actually played Ganon, uh, uh, which didn't appear a lot. But he, he I mained Ganon in Smash Bros. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to talk to I've Matt. I've got the connection. And hey, Matt, if you're listening, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, what's it been like uh, working with him as far as uh, working on the Critical Role source book? Um, he's the sweetest person I've ever met. <laughs> Uh, that's that's how I have to start. Um, he and I and uh, one of the technical producers for Critical Role, Ryan Green, have all been meeting uh, to talk about it, uh, sometimes over Skype, sometimes in person. Um, and really what's just been going on is, you know, we've got uh, this slew of Google Docs that we're all putting out ideas onto. Um, and Sometimes we're just making our own new stuff. Um, sometimes we're going back into the episode archives and saying, "Okay, what did, what did Vax say here? Can I can I make it apply to the Raven Queen now? I have to make sure that consistency is there." And sometimes we're just going and editing uh, each other's words, making sure that it all falls in line. Um, mm-hmm. The the best thing about the Critical Role book, the number one favorite thing uh, of mine about it, is that every 
almost every single location in the book, almost every single uh, city, forest, mound of rocks on the dividing plains has a plot hook attached to it. Nice. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's just a, a little adventure name. Uh, I played World of Warcraft, too, and I love the quest names. And I'm like, okay, let's put a little quest name next to that. It's something, something kind of fun and punny and Azeroth-ish. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, a, a, it gives people like a memory thing for it too. So, yeah. like, oh, I remember that one because I had that funny. They may not even remember the specific part of it, but it's it's a hook for them even to remember. Exactly. So it has that funny name and it has a a vague level range. Um, fifth edition has four tiers ish, and I said low, mid, high, epic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for these kinds of characters, and either it's the smallest seed of a story, or maybe it's a couple of monsters, and these monsters have this objective. Uh, what happens when your players collide with them. That's and and that's the, the most important thing to me about a campaign setting, because this is a campaign setting book with a few other options uh, mm-hmm. in it. And it's, it's to inspire other people to tell stories within a world. Um, I see that with the new Middle-Earth 5th edition campaign setting coming out now. Yeah. It's, it's tools to give people uh, an easier time creating their own things. And whether that's the Forgotten Realms or if you're going online and finding Eberron stuff, where if you're looking at Tal'Dorei with the Critical Rulebook, all of that is its building blocks. And that's that's the biggest thing about 5th edition for me, is the, the rulings, not rules things. Mm. That's uh, the kind of the core of it. It's building blocks for people to create whatever kind of adventure they want for whatever kind of people they are. So many different kinds of people play D&D, especially as... Uh, shows like Critical Role and The Adventure Zone and uh, Dice Camera Action expand uh, the audience of D&D. Uh, everyone, everyone deserves to have their story told, and, and more than that, the ability to tell their story. Right. And that's, that's core to me as an adventure designer. That is cool. Did you have- I thought you were, yeah. No, no. <laughs> I saw you writing. I saw you writing, so I was like, I want to make sure Bart can uh, no, it was, jump it was in. uh, inspiring some, some notes, some comments, some questions. I, I found it interesting, and I don't know if you had thought this way, uh, listening to you both when you talk about your character uh, tropes that you pulled from. It was Tannis. It was Legolas. But I'm wondering moving forward if it's going to be for, for, the, for audience members moving forward, they'll look at video game characters as... Uh, sort of templates to use for mm. for how they want to make their character and then how that might get presented in adventures. So uh, if you're familiar with so-and-so or you're familiar with this world, you know, here's how we might introduce a, a new campaign setting or world to you. Yeah. And then the, uh, and then I suppose there's more of a question. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, kind of going back to video game design and there's that... Uh, that sense of the side quest in, mm-hmm. in World of Warcraft and how many you choose to do, which is going to take you maybe wildly off your main quest. Uh, but as, as a DM or as an adventure designer, how might you or do you implement that in your adventure design where, sure, the party is going to know what the goal is, but along the way, do you introduce them to other things that might pique their interest, that might pull them off, and it's mm. going to extend the, the session from, from two or three games uh, or sessions, you know, to 20, and, and that's fine. They, right. Um, I, I grapple with that all the time, especially when my campaigns have a time, a set time they have to live. Um, like right now, I'm in my last semester of undergrad, so I'll be graduating in May, and I'll be I'll be leaving. I'll be leaving California and coming back here. So I know my current campaign only has, you know, it, it's got a time limit. Yeah, it's got nine, ten, maybe eight 
sessions left in it. And so I, I have to grapple with how how firmly do I say, this is a story, you guys, this is what I'm giving you. Um, and how much do I say, uh, this this world is your sandbox, play mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the middle ground I like to find with that, and I do this even when my campaigns don't really have a set time limit uh, now because I, I love this uh, design philosophy, is just, um, um, before I say that, I. I do this also because um, I feel like a lot of times my players uh, just choice paralysis happens so easily. Mm. If you give people infinite options, they'll often end up just taking the easiest one because they they can't decide on which other cool side thing they want to do. And so what I'll often do is I will, based on where the PCs are, I'll, I'll dig into my notes and I'll come up with three like elevator pitches, and I will seed those. Uh, ideas, those three uh, potential ideas into whatever they're doing. Sometimes I'll do it with uh, a pre-session campaign recap. Sometimes I'll say, you just came here from doing this, and now the options before you may be A, B, and C. Or sometimes as they're beginning an adventure, they'll, I don't know, they'll come across a wounded tabaxi in the woods, something like that. And he'll say, I've been looking for the Shrine of Illusions, and it's, it's off your track, but I, I would love to have the treasure that's inside. And they'll say, oh, we must help this poor wounded man. Um, and they'll, they'll go off and do that. Or they'll say, no, we should really, we should really find the rebel base. That's our, that's our core objective. We can't get sidetracked now. And that gives the players a sense, not only a sense of agency in their adventure, but mm-hmm. a sense of being able to decide the importance of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they give uh, storytelling uh, its, its weight and its currency. That's super cool. Hmm. Yeah, I do the same thing, or at least try to. But I, I the, it's hard when, sometimes when you get to. Like you mentioned having like the A, B, and C options. When you get too heavy-handed with that, I've noticed it, it often feels like they're just going through a dialogue tree. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's it's hard to make to mask those options. You know, sometimes you have to just break it down. And be like, guys, you can do this, this, or this. Yeah. You know, but most of the time, you want to make that we woven into the dialogue and the story, so it doesn't feel like you know this is the menu of options you have. Oh, we're playing a video game now. Yeah. I thought we were playing D and D. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and you were describing the the guy who's wounded in the woods. Like, I, I most of my players would just kill that guy, <laughs> <laughs> and then be like, let's go get that treasure. <laughs> But maybe that's the, the different personality of people that I play with. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's all about knowing your group. Yeah, too. exactly. <laughs> right? Taylor, Taylor reading them. DMing. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, going back a little bit to the Critical Role book uh, that you guys uh, were working on, um, you know, from Google Docs and things like that. Mm-hmm. But what's it like going from a living document, you know? Like, I mean, I, I, I know Matt is extensive in writing notes and things like that. But, you know, there's got to be some stuff that you're like, well, I don't know. That was in session... You know, week four, I don't mm-hmm. know, week 54, something around there. So go watch it, and, and then you'll find out all the story that you need to know to put it in the source book. Has there been stuff like that, or has there been, you know, uh, uh, has it been mostly from stuff that was already written? Um, uh, I've done a lot of working from what Matt has written. Um, he's, you know, I'm, I'm a co-author. He is definitively the author of this book, so he, he has a lot of his own words in there, and I've, you know, I've tweaked them, I've edited. Um, but... Uh, as it happened, when I started working on that project, I wasn't caught up. Mm. Um, I was a solid 20 episodes behind working off the backlog. Mm. So I, I was doing my research just for fun. Uh, I, I was working on it as I was watching the old episodes. So I'm like, oh, well, I'll, I'll take a note of this, and oh, this okay, will go cool. here, and that'll go there. And every now and then, yeah, I'll go back to an older episode. But Matt's a pretty meticulous uh, note-taker. He knows what's important to his setting. Mm. Every now and then, a detail 
uh, will slip through, and I'll have to, and w- one of us will go back. Um, but but the living document, uh, like you were talking about, is is crucial. Um, the greatest feature of Google Docs is that uh, I can click a button and see all of the changes that have been made by mm-hmm. everyone else in the past. Uh, eternity of the document's life. Um, and I'll, I'll look over changes that have been made, and uh, those will become personal notes for me and maybe uh, a discussion point for, oh, you did that? I'm not I'm not sure about that. Or, oh, I did that? Oh, no. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> we should change that. We need to, yeah. yeah. Before that gets into a book, we need to make sure it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's better or different. Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. There was a lot of back and forth about some of the effects, like almost cataclysmic Deathwing-like effects of his... Uh, ultimate red dragon, Thordak, the Cinder King. And we, we had to figure out what effect this reign of terror had on the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in lieu of Skype meetings, often it would just be, you know, a back and forth edit fest and the, uh, a gradual iteration and refinement of ideas. And that's so different from some of the stuff that I've, I've done with, say, Kobold Press and uh, EN Publishing, which is where mm-hmm. I got my start uh, as an editor. Mm, okay. Um, I want to talk about that for just a second because sure. uh, uh, I've gone to uh, PAX a lot and I hear the Chris Perkins talk about him getting started on Dragon Magazine and eventually coming into uh, sort of an editing capacity. And Wolfgang Bauer got a start as, uh, not his start, but he, he worked for a long time as the editor of Dragon Magazine. Yeah. And for some reason, uh, my first steps into the world of doing D&D adventures professionally was as an editor. And that's such an important perspective for me because um, it's so easy to get wrapped up in what you've written. Um, it's, it, you lose sight of the forest for the trees. Being an editor uh, gives you the opportunity to uh, look more impartially at what's been written. And uh, not only that, sort of look at, at what content you want. Yeah. Um, because sometimes the coolest adventures don't fit your needs. And I've had to turn away uh, pitches for a dozen, two dozen, three dozen incredible adventures because uh, I couldn't use them. And and sometimes I'll say, hey, please, please, please submit this to me again. I really want to publish it. Sometimes sometimes I'll be less direct than that. (laughs) Usually I'll be less direct than that. (laughs) Right. Um, Unless I'm head over heels in love with the manuscript. Um, But I'll... And it's and it's that interpersonal communication element of it too, because it's not just your work. You are you are a, yes, you've got a red pen, and yes, you are the custodian of the magazine. But you're also uh, there's a certain duty you have to uh, making the what has been written into what the author meant to write, into mm-hmm. truly giving their voice the the freedom it has to uh, spread its wings and fly, and not just. Uh, take a take a sledgehammer instead of a, a fine toothed comb, yeah, uh, and just bashing your work all over it. I think that's interesting too, because an editor is a way to describe what a dungeon master does mm. uh, in a way, because you're taking the input from the writers, the players who are coming up with the ideas of what they want to do, and being like, all right, well, that's good, and this is slightly what happens when it enters the real world, and that's kind of what an editor does as well, is be like, all right, well, I get what you're trying to do. Here's what happens when you know. Uh, different things, for, you know, uh, interact with it. Yeah. I'd never thought of it that way. That's, an, that's a great analogy. Yeah. Well, um, let me think about that from Westworld. Did you watch Westworld at all? No, I'm not there yet. Because there's one, yeah, there's one moment where, you know... The, I'm not either. Careful. I know, right? <laughs> but the idea of being able to uh, uh, 
write your own existence, your own story uh, is is a very compelling thing. Mm. Uh, uh, and that's kind of what that whole show is all about. So again, I won't, I won't spoil anything. <laughs> but uh, I started thinking about that in D&D terms a lot to be like, well, I mean, it's basically like, you know, that, that whole conceit of that show is basically like a D&D, more Western-themed world, but it's fantasy, you know, jumping into uh, something that's fake. But, you know, here's, here's how what a player who is fake would tr- start to, you know, have its own uh, th- uh, fingerprints yeah. on what's happening mm-hmm. and, and, and what's happening. So, and and that's there's something else about being an editor uh, that is important to my uh, design philosophy. It sort of mixes between uh, worlds in that way. Is that my design? Uh, it always tries to be about empathy. D and D gives you a way to step into the shoes of someone else. Uh, meanwhile, being an editor uh, gives you perspective uh, on what the other side of the table is like. You know, I, I consider myself a a writer, uh, but I'm always editing also. And so whenever I submit a manuscript, I, th- I think about what would an editor do when, uh, when they are looking at this. And it gives me perspective to write better, and it gives me uh, uh, <laughs> the ability to respect what my, what my co-worker, what my, what my editor does, mm. uh, what, what they do for me and uh, what I can do for them. And being a dungeon master is all about that, too. You, you respect what your players give you. You heighten it. And you always think about um, what can I do for me, but also what I can do for them, because it's a shared story. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, what uh, I was going to you, you kind of touched on it, you know, obliquely, but I want to ask you more directly because you're, uh, uh, you know, you're on the, the younger side of probably a lot of our listeners. Yeah. Uh, and uh, here you are already doing you know, more professional game design work. Uh, and uh, something I get asked a lot when I meet people, but you know, maybe you can give some more insight. How do people get started doing this, not just as a hobby, as something that they enjoy, but more professionally? That's an incredible question. Um, it's, and there are a billion ways to answer it. Yeah. Um, I'll give you my answer. Um, yeah, you should perfect this for conventions going forward <laughs> for the next 40 years, but yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll note that. Yeah. Um, um, I'll, I'll start in saying that I... The, the first adventure I ever wrote with the inkling of an idea to publish was written um, before the OGL happened for 5th edition. Okay. I was familiar with it for 3rd edition, and I thought, okay, Mike Merles loves the OGL. Maybe this will happen. I'll get it ready just in case. And then I put a Mind Flayer in it because I'm, I'm a fool, and that's not open content <laughs> anyway. Um, but I love Mind Flayers, so I had to do it. And then the DM skill came out, and I was over the moon. Yeah. I was like, this is literally exactly what I wanted. Um, so right there, those are two incredible opportunities for uh, new designers. And you, you talked about this all the time, uh, publishing through uh, Open Gaming License on DriveThru or DMs Guild. Um, but even those have, the, have a great level of uncertainty because you're always hoping that someone will see them. Mm-hmm. DMs Guild gets, uh, gets scoured by the D&D crew looking for great stuff. But my awesome, cool, now kind of tarnished as I look back four years later at it, adventure. <laughs> the DM Guild is good, but it's not, it's not my best work. It's not, you know, if, if Chris Perkins came and looked at that adventure, I would say, you should look at this new thing instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it, it's a great opportunity, but there are other, other ways in, too. Um, thanks to uh, the open license, there are tons of small publishers. Um, and there's a, this wonderful thread on the EN World forums that talks about freelancing. It, it really talks about like freelancing pay, mm-hmm. but it, it talks about the, the business of it too. And, uh, and companies that do it uh, look for 
I'll plug my own thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, Ian World has a Patreon-based magazine that I am the editor for called Insider, uh, E-N numeral 5-I-D-E-R, and we publish articles and uh, adventures for 5th edition, and we do it through the OGL, um, and we, we like to pay what people are worth, we like to make sure that people get paid good rates because yeah. that's, that's a tough thing to do in this industry. It's like you and I were talking about uh, acting. It's hard to get to that upper echelon of making right. a living. Of so even you, being in a show yeah. for no pay and then like, wait, actually to get one that we actually are being paid, uh, how much your time is worth. Exactly. There difficult. are so many gigs out there that will pay you half a cent a word. Yeah. And that's like if you're trying to make a living wage, that's impossible. But if you're, if you're uh, to you use that acting for- metaphor, if you're doing summer stock, then that's the same thing. You're, yeah. you're just doing work to build experience and build a resume. You want to look, uh, you want to submit all the time. Uh, when, you're, when you're out of a, a salary job, you submit to, you give your job application, you give your resume to everyone you can find. Mm-hmm. When you're an actor, you audition everywhere. Um, so if you're a D&D you, writer, you got to get your stuff out there. You submit, 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 um, and you learn how to craft a really good pitch. Um, Whenever people give me a bad pitch um, on Insider, I'll say, um, if it's a cool idea, I'll say, cool idea. Um, here's an example of a pitch that I've accepted before. Um, this will help you give me a better idea of what you want and what you will give me also. Mm-hmm. So when you're saying a pitch, you're really saying that, you know, a short paragraph, three or four sentences describing your idea and how they're going to deliver it to you. Yep. And how many words it is. And how many words it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's so, a hard skill to learn. Even it's as, hard. Because, again, I mean, we, we were talking about this in the room earlier, but it's a harder it's a different skill than making the thing actually is. Yes. Which is so frustrating, especially as an actor. You know, you'd be like, well, I mean, auditioning, you have to sell yourself. It's almost more like stand up where you have to mm-hmm. be like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you, everybody in this room needs to dig me and then think I'm good enough to play this thing. And you sell them. And the pitch is very similar where you have to be like, you, I only have this, you know, 10 seconds of attention from an editor. And you got to make that 10 seconds work, mm-hmm. you know, and the way to do that is to be as direct and interesting and creative and professional as possible. Yeah. And in that order, because I know people who are like, I'm going to be professional. And they're like, there's no creativity or, yeah. you know, anything else in here. But like, hey, that was a very professional email. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, so like, but you, so you got to make sure that there's life and, 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 and yeah. fun in it. Uh, but at the same time, make sure that that the editor thinks that you can pull off what you're suggesting. Yeah. And you're totally right. It's an entirely different skill set. But it also comes with the idea that if you are a good enough writer to sell me this idea in uh, a minute of my paying attention to your email, you're a good enough writer to write it, Yeah, uh, generally speaking. Um, and so places that I've, uh, I've done work with are all uh, really, really great um, publishers. Uh, and it's a publisher you, you look for, usually unless you're self-publishing. Um, and that would be EN World. It would be Kobold Press. Uh, it would be Green Ronin. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if you do good enough work, you make uh, you make good friends, and you uh, get seen by people. Eventually, Wizards of the Coast, and at a certain point, people start pitching to you, and that's that's when you get really happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but that's harder for people to think. You know, that, that's the that's, dream. That's far off down the road. Yeah. And it may not even really materialize too. And that's, yeah. but that's okay because I think. 
you know, different than than you know. I'm, I'm talking about acting a lot because we have we both share a theater background, and yeah. of course, my my wife is an actress too, so I get a lot of the the, the rejection side right. of the stories. Um, so it's an easy go to as a comparison, but you can't do the thing that you want to do without getting the pitch happening. And D and D writing is a little bit different in that. Well, you can still write it, you can still make the the, the thing. Um, and put it out in the world, and that's what's so great about DMs Guild and uh, the other marketplaces out there yeah. is that you know there is there is somewhere for people to see your work and play it, and even you know you yourself playing a, as a DM, and you know maybe one of those days one of your players is someone who has some of the hiring power that you're talking about and wants to you know be involved. So like yeah, don't get discouraged if you do submit, 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 and things don't 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 work out because. Heck, you still get to play. <laughs> yeah. I've been very fortunate to start freelancing as a college student because um, I, I feel secure in my housing. I feel secure in my uh, occupation as a student. So I can, I can very safely work part-time as a freelancer. I can send out pitches. I can do. I can edit. Yeah. Um, and the, the editing job is crucial because it's, uh, it's consistent. Um, that's an uh, unbelievably rare find, and I'm thankful, uh, unbelievably thankful to to Russ for uh, having me as part of that team. Because uh, being a freelancer is full of uncertainty. Yeah, you have yeah. to find those uh, those stable occupations, and whether that's working at a Fred Meyer, working at you know a grocery store, or something, finding your uh, your day job that is unrelated to D and D. All of my D and D writing happened when I was a secretary. Yeah. <laughs> Because it was the only way I had like a, a steady paying job in front of a computer where I could type uh, uh, D&D words. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the same with me for being a student. I'm writing essays one second and then I say, okay, I need a break. Let's yeah. shift over to writing something a little more fantastic. <laughs> nice. Um, and shout out to Morris for making that uh, EN Insider. It's, it's good stuff. Incredible. It's, it's incredible stuff. Um, and it, it was a real gamble because when we were still thinking about it, no OGL uh, happened yet. So we were making all these preparations and just sort of... Uh, waiting for the right time. Exactly. And then you struck like a cobra. Boom. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. So any other, I mean, what, what, what are, what's coming up next for you? Uh, what can people see uh, the, your work coming out next? Um, uh, we've talked about a lot of it. Uh, as yeah. you know, I'm always uh, doing stuff for, for Insider. Uh, you'll see me editing a lot. Uh, we are very close to launching a very cool Kickstarter Ooh, cool. Um, based on stuff that we've collected in that magazine over the past uh, however many years. And it's nine, nine, seven new character classes. Ooh. Um, very, very cool stuff. Uh, there's been a lot of playtesting and work that goes into it. I, I've seen how much work goes into playtesting full new classes over here with all the Unearthed Arcana. Yeah. Um, and some of these classes are very, uh, very out there, very, very demonic, very fey, very... Um, there's a there's a class that's a dedicated shapeshifter. Oh, nice. Um, so so I'm I'm working on the back end of that Kickstarter. Um, you'll see the critical role Taldore campaign setting coming out with Green Ronin, I think this spring. Um, I don't oh, know so for sure. Soon. Okay, pretty great. soon I hope. Um, I don't know for for sure, but it's coming up. The text is locked. Green Ronin's got it uh, covered. Nice. We'll get Chris Pamus on the phone. Ask him about that. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, with Kobold Press, uh, they just completed their Midgard Kickstarter, and I, uh, I, and a couple other adventure writers wrote this very cool book of eldritch lairs. Um, some of them are connected to form a longer story going through this uh, uh, crypt of green shadows and layers in the western wastes of Midgard. Neat. And some are standalones. Uh, I showed Chris Perkins this cool adventure that's going to be published called Castle of the Windlords. Um, and it's all about uh, 
knoll arch thieves and uh, sort of elemental warforged-like characters. Um, so it's all wild and wacky, off-the-wall awesomeness. Um, and if you see my name anywhere, that's that's what you're going to get. Sweet. Nice. That Kickstarter just, is it, did it completed the Midgar one? It completed a couple weeks ago. Good. All right. So it'll be coming out in the next couple of months or so. Nice. Wolfgang was uh, was talking it up last time he was here. It sounded really exciting. So mm-hmm. it's happy to see that that Kickstarter was, uh, you know, a little successful. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> it, only bro- it only broke through like 20 stretch goals. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. How he has to like plan for that at this point. Be like, all right, yeah. right we got to have 40 stretch goals just in case. Yeah, really. <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, where can people uh, follow you? Where, where are you? Are you on the Twitter? Yeah, I sure am. Uh, you can follow me. My Twitter handle is James J. Hake. Uh, Hake spelled H-A-E-C-K. And I talk about all the stuff I do there. I talk about um, new things I'm doing. I talk about games in general. I talk about cool people in games. Um, great place to be. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in, man. It was good to, good to talk to you. Thanks a whole lot. It was great talking to both of you. Oh, man. Uh, it was really great talking to James, and I'm going to pretend that he's not still in the room looking at us when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also uh, played the trombone in uh, in. You band. did, too? I did, too. Oh, it, I was because it, it was the worst instrument for a little gangly oh, fifth no. grader to carry around. <laughs> It's just, I hated that thing so much. Man, we have a, a trombone section here, uh, and I don't remember any of it other than, like, you know, St. Almost, well, no, uh, St. Elsewhere. I remember the notes for that. That's about uh, it. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's, I, I, I'm sure I couldn't even play that. <laughs> it's basically hot cross bones. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we were also talking that my new million dollar idea is going to be developing a role for that adventure pitch writer you create the adventure but you don't create the cover for it that's somebody else's skill set but it sells the adventure All right. so I, I create the adventure and then you need somebody to, to write, to write pitch the pitch to write the pitch right I love that idea yeah, yeah. Bart Carroll pitch writer <laughs> but not, now it's on a podcast so I can't copyright this idea so. you totally can <laughs> <laughs> that, I don't think that works. Right? It's like this is like you know the equivalent of sending uh, a script to yourself. Oh right, you know, the WGA. Yeah, is like, it's right. postmarked now. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be like a date that says <laughs> when Bart Carroll came up with this. I love that idea. All right, so send all of your uh, your manuscripts to Bart, and uh, he will write the pitch. And if none of them get bought, well, that's that's your fault. Wait, no, wait, that's yeah, that's Bart. That's Bart's yeah, fault. That is now. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Bart, where can people find out uh, where to send that those pitches to? Uh, I am also on Twitter, Bart underscore Carol. Uh, also look for D&D website, dnd.wizards.com, and of course, Dragon Magazine at dragonmag.com. That's where all of the uh, special issues of Dragon are out there, uh, yes. and it is accessible for all on the web, uh, but of course, iOS and Android, you get that natively on your phone. Exactly. It's good stuff. Uh, you can find me. I'm at Greg Tito. Um, let me know what you think about uh, this podcast in a nice way, constructive. Uh, you can also leave uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes uh, as well. I think Google has reviews and ratings, but you know anything you do that helps elevate the uh, uh, podcast so more people can hear about this awesome hobby that is tabletop role playing. Much appreciated, and uh, of course, your feedback is is also appreciated as well. Uh, check Wizards out on the at Wizards underscore D and D on the Twitters, um, and of course, we mentioned D and D Beyond early on. But go to D and D Beyond dot com to find out about uh, the beta test for um, that amazing tool set. Uh, I, I can't plug that enough because I'm just really excited for more people to check it out. Cool. Go Tortles. Go Tortles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're time traveling today, yeah, but both Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford have competing Twitter uh, uh, 
polls about turtles. Yeah, really like, quick. Are you pro or anti turtle person? I, I'm I'm pretty ambivalent. Uh, uh, I, I I like that uh, Mike hates them though, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna say I like them so that uh, there's a lot of passion both ways. So yeah, we'll say that in the office on the Twitter. For those well, of you so. don't know, turtles are the D and D anthropomorphic turtle monsters uh, that uh, don't get a lot of play out there, but I think they may have inspired the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Just throwing that out there. Uh, so if you want those in your game, uh, respond to Mike uh, Merles on Twitter. He's at Mike Merles. Um, You'll have to uh, go back and Twitter a few, yeah, uh, few posts. And tell him, uh, tell him that turtles must be included <laughs> in the next uh, products from, from Music of the Coast. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. See you next week.